Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. We are continuing in our uh, study of Ephesians, as you know by what we just read. And um, today, uh, we're finishing off chapter two. I feel like we're going at lightning speed now. I mean, we were going so slow for a while. Now we're going so quickly, but it's good. Um, Paul has uh, sort of a whole package of things to say to us that I think are pertinent and relevant to our lives today. Sometimes we can maybe get tripped up with language that we don't necessarily use today, like nobody goes around and calls somebody an uncircumcised heathen. Um, that's not really a thing anymore. Um, for no, Not where I live, at least. In uh, South Niagara Falls, that's not a thing. Um, but um, so some of the language we may be unfamiliar with, and we'll talk through it today, and we'll walk through what we just read. But so much of what we sang about today Actually, it's direct application here. It's exactly what Paul is saying. What he's saying is that um, there is someone who came to do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. That's Jesus Christ. And he accomplished everything that God called him to do through his death on the cross, the, what is called the shedding of his blood. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. That too seems gross to us today. Um, but had great significance when this was written in the first century. And we sang about that today, what Jesus came and what he did. We sang about the blood of Jesus today. Paul goes on to say that what Jesus did removed this wall of hostility, this separating factor between us and God and between us and each other. We talked about that this morning, and we sang about that this morning. Paul begins in verse 11 by saying, don't forget, Ephesians 2, 11, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. So just if you're not aware uh, of the terminology, a Gentile was anyone who wasn't a Jew. So that's all of us. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. That's anyone who's not Jewish by ethnic heritage. In Paul's day, that was a significant thing. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision. I mentioned that word one other time and I had a mom from here say, great, thanks. My 10-year-old daughter came home and said, what is circumcision, mom? <laughs> so you're welcome for helping you initiate that conversation. If you don't know what it is, ask your mom and dad here. They'll be happy to talk with you about that. But it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. So what is Paul kind of probing in on here? It goes much deeper than just these weird words that we don't quite understand. There was a cultural animosity that was experienced between Roman citizens and non-Jewish people and the nation of Israel and the people that were called Jews. And it was thousands of years old, this animosity that was experienced between the two. 
And when Paul is using these terms, they're actually quite derogatory. Um, Jews would call non-Jewish people uncircumcised heathens. That wasn't a, a term of endearment. That was actually a deep insult. You might remember the Old Testament story when David um, steps out to confront Goliath and Goliath is making all of these grand statements about what he's going to do and how he's going to destroy the nation of Israel and how he's the greatest warrior. And David's response is a derogatory one. He says, who is this uncircumcised heathen that defies the armies of the Lord of heaven? It's a cultural slur. He's insulting him. And Paul is saying, look, there, there's something that's fractured in our culture here. There's an animosity and a tension that's going on. And sometimes it's plain in the broad daylight. And sometimes it's subversive. It, it hides under the surface. And he's saying there's a prejudice that, that you're walking with. And it's not a prejudice that's just affecting one side. It's from both sides. The Jews believed that because of their bodily circumcision, they, they were good with God. They believed that, that their faith, everything boiled down to this, this one act and that through circumcision they were made right with God. But what Paul is saying is it, it's a circumcision done with hands and he's making a specific uh, allusion to the Old Testament where Moses chastised the Israelites for building idols with their hands. And what Paul is saying is, your circumcision, your religious practice, your superficial religious practice is meaningless because it hasn't impacted your heart. And because you're living on a superficial level, these tensions and prejudices in your life begin to spring up. And so he says, remember, remember what God saved you from. Remember everything that God did for you. I was thinking about that this week and trying to remember some things. And I, I think we struggle when, we, when it comes to remembering. A, we have selective memory. But often we remember things in a distorted fashion. Often we remember things and we're the victim. We're the one that's been oppressed or hurt or offended. We remember things and, and we're the ones that have been marginalized and we're the ones that have been affected. We, we're the ones that have been deeply wounded when we remember that and sometimes we remember things and we remember what's been done to us and in our remembering, we want to execute judgment on that and we remember things that have happened in our families and in our marriages and when we remember that, Thoughts come to our mind, like, I'll never let that happen again. That was unjust, and that wasn't fair, and that wasn't right. And when we remember, we're not remembering everything that we've been saved from and all the great things God has done for us, we're remembering the injustice, the marginalization. And when we remember that way, it distorts and convolutes our perspective. It places the emphasis on us. I, 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 me, me, me. I become the center of everything. Woe is me. We slide into self-pity or 
or we act out an aggression and we become a, a dominator of people. What Paul is saying is if you remember the next time you're fighting with your spouse and you're fighting and you feel so um, marginalized, so like it's so unjust what's happening, remember everything that you've been saved from. Remember the extreme grace that God has poured out to you in your life. And if he's given you that grace, if he's given me that grace, can we not extend that grace to those that we face opposition with? Those that have wounded us so deeply. Paul is saying, remember, but be careful how you remember. What you remember. Some of us have a long memory, but it's not a healthy one. We have a, a little list on the side with every hurt and every wound and every person's name. And when those, those people come to mind, we aren't remembering everything God has saved us from and given us grace for. We're remembering how we want to bring justice to what was done to us. How we want to be the arbiter of truth and how we want to enforce what we believe is right back into the situation. And Paul's saying, look, we're not gonna get anywhere if that's how we remember things. So we need to remember correctly. How do we remember? Do we re remember with grudge and revenge? Do we hold something in our back pocket for that day and just, just clinging to it, going, I'm gonna get revenge for this one day. One day this will be made right. And some of you have been horrifically treated and violated and abused. Some of you have gone through things that are unimaginable that no one should ever go through. What Paul would say to you through this is that Jesus is the person that you need to look to as you're grieving and processing and healing. It's Jesus who can bring you freedom and healing. Not holding this thing in your back pockets with the hopes that one day justice in your interpretation of it will be done. Paul is saying like this kind of remembering is bringing hostility. He's alluding to Exodus when God said to Moses, remember this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, 400 years in slavery. Remember that because the Lord brought you out and he did it with a mighty hand. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You did nothing to make it happen. It was all God. It was all God bringing you from death to life bringing you out of oppression and slavery to life. And it was the Israelites, it was their lack of, of remembering properly that led them into so many troubles. So quickly they forgot what God had done and began complaining. Began bitterly complaining and resisting the, the further move of God in their life because they had forgotten everything he'd done. And when we forget the amazing things that God has done for us, we can step into that world of bitterness and hardness of heart where we reject the, the, the current and future work of God because we've forgotten what he did in the past for us. So Paul is saying, 
you need to remember. The circumcision also was an illustration of identity for the Israelites. And what Paul is saying is you did this with your own hands. You've elevated identity over relationship. You've made a God out of identity. And this identity isn't rooted in who God created you to be and what he's called you to be. It's rooted in this external, superficial change. But change hasn't really happened inside. And today, we've uh, elevated identity to this God-like status. And we've said, no, I can choose for myself my identity. I determine my identity. I choose who I will or won't be. I choose what will or won't happen with my body in that way. And in that same way, we violate the heart of God. We remove God from that equation in our life. And we make ourselves the center of everything. What Paul is saying is you better be very careful, very, very careful when you start to insert yourself as the arbiter of who you are and what you've been called to. There's an identity that God has written in our hearts before we were born, before the earth was even formed. God had a blueprint for your life that came out of his love and his majesty and his goodness and is meant to bring you life and joy and peace. But he hasn't said to you, go ahead, rewrite the blueprint, redraft it, do whatever you want. He said, no, the, the closer you walk in alignment with me, with the blueprint I've designed for your life, the greater you submit to my identity over you, the greater joy and pleasure you'll experience in your life. You'll find fulfillment. And so circumcision was this false identity that they carried. I think what Paul is probing at here is this historical and actual issue of offense. I think maybe what Paul is digging at under the surface is these two people groups, these two national identities boiled down into individuals as well have been carrying offense. And that offense has been destroying their lives. In Luke 17, 1, Jesus says to his disciples in the King James Version, it's impossible that offenses will not come. Jesus is warning his disciples and saying, look, you will not go through life without being offended. It's impossible. So we're all gonna be offended. The, the issue is how do we deal with offense? How do we process that? What happens in our heart when we are confronted with offense, when we've been hurt and wounded, when there's a dividing line between us and other people? What do we do? How do we process that? That Greek word for offense there is scandalon. And literally the scandalon was the um, element of a trap that held the bait so not many of us are trappers today, probably. Some of us might be. Where's Scott? Is he here? He likes to do that stuff. But um, 
So the Greek word scandalon was literally the piece of the trap that the bait sat on. And what God is saying, what Jesus is saying to the disciples is offense is going to be there. There's an opportunity around every corner to be offended by someone for something. It's there. It's always going to be there. The question is, are you going to reach in and spring the trap and then entrap yourself? Offense is a trap of the enemy to ensnare you and I. And Paul is seeing this on a nationalistic level, on a cultural and societal level. There's offense everywhere. In 2 Timothy, I'm just going to read this to you. Timothy was Paul's understudy. And um, Timothy was mentored by Paul. Timothy was stepping into his own ministry stepping into leadership of his own and experiencing all of the pitfalls of that. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. Paul says, again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. Who here has a spouse like that? No, just don't raise your hand. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, you can leave, honey. All right. Rochelle, let's get that on tape. All right. <laughs> All right. Two hands. How dis I am offended. All right. <laughs> I lost my place. All right. Okay. Don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments after church, during lunch, when you're tired and you just preached. All right. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. I love this. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts. I love how he says perhaps. It may not even happen. Perhaps it might. But that's not on you. It's not your responsibility to change someone's heart. And yet some of us spend our whole life attempting to do that. We're applying the mold to someone else's life to produce the result that we want to see. And God is saying, it may or may not happen, but you've got to let go of it. You've got to allow me, God, to step into that place and work. So what you need to do is pray and not pray that they would be blessed and changed into everything that you want them to be, but pray that they would experience the fullest life that God has planned for them. Not prayer with an agenda in such a way, but prayer that exhorts and blesses. Then they will come to their senses and escape, underline this if you have a pen, from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Of course, we know from the beginning of chapter two of Ephesians that We face three primary assaults on our life meant to destroy us. The the spirit of our age, the zeitgeist of our culture, the devil himself, there is a spiritual realm that's real. The devil is not a force. He's an intelligent spiritual being with great power and he knows how to trip us up. And all of his demonic realm, they understand you and I better than we know ourselves. 
They know how to manipulate. They hardly have to lift a finger. In fact, half the time, we get to Paul's third one, so culture, the devil, and our flesh, our, ourselves. We trip ourselves up. Not everything is the devil's fault. Sometimes it's just you and I being foolish and hard-headed. And Paul is saying we need to approach offense in a different way. We need to approach offense in our marriages in a different way, in our family relationships. As we've seen in this scripture and through Ephesians, there's this trajectory that God has for us where we deeply deal with ourselves. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, Paul is dealing with us. What's going on in your heart? What is God doing in your life? Take care of what he's doing in your life before you start looking over the fence into somebody else's life. And then after we allow God to work deeply in our own hearts and lives, he says, all right, now look at those around you and your family, your loved ones, the people closest to you. Are there areas of offense and bitterness and unforgiveness and hurt that are actually trapping you, that are actually cutting you off at the knees, that are, that are stopping you from fully experiencing the life God has called you to? Because they will and they do. We can't pretend that things like unforgiveness and hurt and offense and bitterness and judgment will have no effect on our lives. They absolutely, absolutely kill our spiritual life. And Paul is saying, look, this is, these are things that need to be addressed and he's calling for it on a cultural level, on a national level. It, it brings up, um, memories um, like we've talked about in the past of Genesis 10, the story of Babel. Some of you may have heard that story before, but the, the story of Babel is the disinheriting of the nations. It's these people that got together and wanted to build a tower, and it wasn't just a tower for architectural beauty. The tower had a specific function, and that was to connect the spiritual realm to the earth. They wanted a spiritual connection point outside of God. God said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And he disinherits, he confuses their language and disinherits these nations. Deuteronomy 32 gives us the spiritual perspective underneath. And it literally says that God is sitting amongst his spiritual, his divine council of spiritual beings and he assigns them these nations that have rebelled against him. God disinherits the nation. But out of that disinheritance in Genesis 12, he takes a man named Abram as a remnant for himself and builds a new nation. That's where the nation of Israel comes from. But what God has wanted to do on the earth since Genesis 1 has always been obstructed, has always been challenged and confronted by spiritual forces that oppose him. And they're opposing you in your life and they're using things like hurt and unforgiveness and offense to kill you and destroy you, to kill your families and your marriages. They're using your lack of patience and grace and tolerance with your family members to kill and destroy you, to undermine the very calling, the high calling of God in your life. Verse 12, he says, 
something. All right. Verse 12. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promise of God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. I just want to say one thing really there primarily. One, what is your hope in today? It is, is it in your ability and capacity to fix things and manage things and generate things? And God may have given you a great capacity. But if you trust in that, you'll be discouraged and let down. This is why I'm so passionate as well about our theology of heaven. A right understanding of what the Bible talks about in terms of heaven and eternal life will set our hope in the right place. And this boils down to a very tangible level for me. And it may seem trivial to you, which is okay. But for me, every time I'm back in the West and I'm back in the mountains, my heart longs to stay there because that's where I come alive. When I'm at the top of a mountain, literally, not just emotionally, but literally, I'm drawn to the presence of God like nowhere else. I'm drawn to this other life, this, this, this something else that's so much bigger than even me. And yet when I get on the plane to come back east, every time there's something that is grieved in my heart and I love you and I love what God is doing in you and in me and in this place, but there's something different my heart is longing for and grieved for. And every single time I have this same dialogue with God because of what I believe about eternity, Jesus, that you came and you died and you rose again in bodily form and that one day you're gonna recreate the heavens and the earth. I'm okay to wait. I'm okay to put off my desire for however many years for the chance at spending eternity with you in the place that I love with the people that I love. God, I'm okay to wait on getting everything that I want right now. I'm okay, God, to do that. God, would your desire and your will be fulfilled for my life instead? Would you trade 10 years, five years, one year, 20 years, 30 years of having it your way now for an eternity, experiencing unimaginable pleasure and joy in God's presence on this physical earth. That to me is the hope that we live for. It's the thing that anchors us and centers us in the purposes and plans of God. Paul goes on to say, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus once you were far away from God. But now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. What's he saying there? He's referencing again, there's an Old Testament story, Exodus 23, I think. The Israelites have come out of the land of Egypt and God is calling Moses up onto the mountain to meet with him directly. And God says, Moses, you're allowed to come near, but all you other ones, you've got to stay far. I will accept you, Moses, into my close, intimate presence, but no one else can even set foot on the mountain. And what Paul is saying is that dividing line is gone. We all have an opportunity to be close to God, 
to be in intimate relationship with him. Verse 14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Just a couple notes. Uh, I'm just gonna go back to verse 13 for one sec. The blood of Jesus. That may seem horrific and gross to some of you. Some of you may get squeamish around blood and you're like, I don't even wanna read that. I have a friend who works in the film industry. That's all I'll say. Um, And uh, he hates blood. We were filming uh, at McMaster one time, um, and we were filming actually an open heart surgery, which was super cool. Like I thought it was amazing. So the the nurse um, is walking us down the corridor in the OR, and uh, we get to the door that's into this surgical suite here. And my friend, whose name starts with an S, but I won't say anymore. Um, he saw the uh, machine that circulates the blood for the heart and he went green, like immediately went green. He took a step back like this and he said, guys, I trust you with this. You guys can go in. So we went in and we watched this and filmed this for, uh, for the hospital. And he told us after, he said, the very first time I was filming a, some kind of surgical procedure at McMaster again, it was a hernia operation. That time he was by himself. He went in, the doctor did like his first cut and he fainted right on the floor with his camera and all of his gear. He literally fainted. So he said the nurses literally grabbed him by his feet and drug him out into the hallway where he remained for the remainder of the Procedure. The second letter in his name is C. All right. (laughs) All right. So, the blood of Jesus, why is that significant? In the Old Testament, again, Paul is writing to a different audience in a different cultural time. We typically in North America, uh, A, we don't watch typically our food being butchered. So we're not really used to or comfortable with blood in that way. But the blood of Jesus was referencing. It was the blood of animals that needed to be shed to cover and atone for the sin of people. And the point of the blood is that life is in the blood. That life is in the blood. And not only did the blood of the animal need to be shed, they would actually take that blood and they would sprinkle it on the altar itself. They would cover the horns of the altar. Anything in the temple that was subject to decay was covered with the blood. Fascinating and gross all at the same time. But what Paul is saying is this powerful life force, the blood of Jesus, is the thing that actually gives us access to the very presence of God. The temple in the Old Testament was a a symbol, a literal symbol for the place of the presence of God. The presence of God resided in the temple and in the tabernacle. But you couldn't get near the presence of God without the shedding of blood. And the life was in the blood, Ephesians 14, Christ brought peace to us and ended the hostility. Verse 15, he did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself a new people from the two groups. 
one scholar has said that's a new society, that what Jesus did was not kind of create this uh, Frankenstein of a whole bunch of stuff, but what Jesus came to do was create a totally new and different society with different rules and different grace and different love. And that it wasn't this fighting between nations and cultures and people groups that actually our cultural identity in Christ becomes absorbed and unified under Jesus. That we're not to fight cultural wars. We don't have oppressors that we need to dominate in that way. That in Jesus Christ, there's a new society with a new identity. Verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. Just a simple question for you. Has your hostility to others been put to death? And I don't mean you prayed about it one time or you forgave that person one time. I mean, has your hostility toward others been put to death? Meaning when someone comes to mind, what is the internal dialogue? What, be, what begins in your mind? I want to submit to you that if a person who's hurt you comes to mind and your first response internally is a dialogue to overpower, to cut down, to justify, to uh, leverage power over whatever it is that you haven't dealt with what you need to deal with fully. We can say, theoretically, that we forgive people. But there's hostility in our heart and in our soul that needs to be dealt with and it needs to be cut down as we go. As a practical um, measure for that, what I want to encourage you with, and this is like real life spiritual warfare, as soon as somebody comes to mind, and maybe somebody's coming to mind right now that you've been hurt by or wounded by or offended by, as soon as that uh, name comes to mind, this is what you do. You say, in the name of Jesus, I take that thought captive. I stop this internal dialogue right now in Jesus' name, whether it's your spouse, a friend, a coworker, me. <laughs> I've been deeply hurt by some of you. And there's a, there's, a, there's a desire to create this dialogue in my head where I justify and where I re-wound and I re-injure just so that I can feel better about myself for a split second. But that's a trap that ends in death. And so what you do is you say, in the name of Jesus, I take that thought captive, 2 Corinthians 10, verse four to six. I take that thought captive. And in Jesus' name, instead, I pray, I pray blessing on their life. God, would you give them a full life? Everything that I've ever desired from, from you, would you give it to them? Would you fill them with your hope and your peace and your grace and your joy? And every time that person comes to mind, we go through that same thing and we begin to walk in authority over that. We begin to drain the tank of unforgiveness and hurt and offense. And as we drain the tank, we experience freedom to the point where that person comes to mind and our first inclination is God bless them. God prosper them. God, do things in their life that I've only dreamed of. 
I want to see it for them. I want to see their family thrive and succeed. I want to see that person thrive in business and go further than I ever could. I want to see their gifts unleashed in the kingdom. I want to see them. You use them in the church. I want to see that church, God, experience revival and renewal. This is the hostility that resides deep in our soul that Paul is inviting us to confront. There was a wall literally in the temple, it's about four feet high, that separated the areas where the non-Jewish people could go from every other area. And this is what it said on that wall. This was the inscription. To every Gentile, non-Jewish person, if they walked into the temple, they would be confronted with this wall about four feet high. Some of you who have been there may have seen remnants of this. There were 13 stone inscriptions erected at various points on its balustrade that warned Gentiles not to enter under the penalty of death. Literally, that sign says, if you choose to enter, you take your life and your death into your own hands. You will be killed, but it's your fault. What God is saying is, I've demolished this wall. I've demolished this thing, this fence between you and I that has separated us. 17, verse 17, he brought this good news of peace to you, the Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done from us. Are you living in peace today? And that's not just, I don't mean are you happy in this moment. It's really hot in here. I'm not sure that I'm happy. Are you living in peace? I don't know why I wore this jacket. Anyway. And then Paul finishes this chapter with a turn again. With a turn from addressing the problems and dysfunctions to saying, now you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together you are his house built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone is Christ himself. We are carefully joined together with him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling place of God. The imagery there of the temple, like I said, uh, Paul, when he was writing this, the second temple was still standing, but a decade after he finished writing this, it was destroyed by the Romans. And, uh, but this temple had ornate carvings all over it. And it's kind of peculiar. These carvings were of pomegranates and fruit and lush vegetation. The carvings were meant to remind them of Eden. And Eden was a place where man and God lived in perfect alignment before sin came into the world. The point of all of these things on the temple was to remind them that God's heart for them and his heart for you and his heart for me is to live in alignment, in purpose, to actually experience a full life, the full presence of God leading your life. But what he wants to do in you and I is he wants to confront stuff in our own heart and he wants to confront the stuff in our relationships. Our churches 
If you've been going to church for a long time, you know this to be true. Our churches are filled with people carrying hurt and offense and bitterness and rejection and unforgiveness. Churches split all the time. Rather than dealing with the offense, the offended party split and say, I'm just gonna go launch another church. And guess what? That same church becomes a breeding ground for hurt and offense because it's never been dealt with. You can divorce your spouse and still not deal with the hurt and the offense that are at the root of it and not find freedom and carry the same baggage from relationship to relationship. And God is saying there's a different way. Would you just stop and deal with it? As a church, our church, you come from many different backgrounds. Some of you are here for the first time. Some of you have been in church forever. Some of you are coming from reform backgrounds and some from Pentecostal and charismatic and some from Mennonite backgrounds and the whole gamut, Baptist backgrounds. And the heart of God is that we deal with and confront hurt and offense so that our church, our community, this body can be released and liberated to carry the kingdom of God in Niagara. And not just as our church, but with every other church in Niagara. For the last year, every morning I've been praying for you, literally. And every person, every one of you that I remember in the moment, I pray for by name. Every morning for the last year, I've prayed for every pastor and every church in this whole region, from Fort Erie and Welland to Lake Mountain Grimsby every morning because I want to see the kingdom of God come and it will not come when you carry offense and hurt and unforgiveness. So the question is, are you willing to allow what Jesus did on the cross to be enough for you to walk in freedom? You may say, well, it's 90% the other person's fault. And it may be. What God is calling you and I to is to take 100% ownership for your 10%. What is your part? Like he said to Timothy, God may change their heart or he may not, but what are you gonna do? What's going on in your heart? Don't be responsible for everyone else here. Don't get involved in their business and worrying about what's happening. Deal with what's going on in here first and watch the kingdom of God and his joy and his peace explode in your life. Let's stand together. I'm going to invite Liz up. To be truthful, this is a process. This is what it means to walk in and appropriate the kingdom of God. There may be things right now that God is bringing to your mind, that the Holy Spirit is bringing you conviction in, that he's reminding you of. I don't want you to feel the the stress and this artificial pressure to kind of deal with your whole life in one minute here. What my challenge is to you and to I today is to just start where he points his finger. Are there issues going on in your heart or in your relationships that need forgiveness? Have you been ensnared and entrapped? Are you crippled? Because of the hurt you're carrying, you weren't meant to carry that hurt. People were never meant to carry the hurt of divorce. God never designed that for us to carry. That's why it's so excruciating and so difficult. 
But sometimes we carry these things for so long that they just, they, they graft themselves onto us and we have a third leg before we know it and we don't know what to do with it. It doesn't even work, but we just drag it around. And Jesus wants in his grace and in his mercy, he points to things in our life, not to condemn us, but to begin the process of renewing and restoring and rebuilding and remaking. Even the things in our lives that have long been gone and changed. Jesus can actually and does want to bring healing and renewal in. So what are the areas of hurt and offense and hostility in your heart? Men and women who are married here, are you carrying secrets in your marriage? If your wife doesn't know everything you've been doing, A, it's sin, and B, it's crippling you from everything God wants for you. The greatest outpouring of the presence of God in my life is when I confronted my wife and said, this is everything. This is everything I haven't told you. This is everything I've been hiding from you, trying to protect you, trying to protect me, trying to create this illusion of whatever. The greatest breakthrough in my life came when I confronted the stuff going on in my heart. The stuff that for years I had said, well, it's not affecting anyone else. I can deal with it. It's just hurting me and I'm okay to be hurt. That's nonsense. Jesus doesn't want you to walk around wounded. He wants to bring you life. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.